So this morning, we will be talking about the subject of world religions and uh, trying to uh, cover the topic of world religions in a Sunday morning sermon is about like trying to teach the English language all in one hour. It's a lot of material to cover. So this morning, we're only going to be able to cover some basic points of the topic. And just for information's sake, you can think of this uh, talk this morning as kind of an introduction to a series of classes we're going to give at Antioch next fall on the topic of world religions. So this morning will be an introduction, and in the fall we'll have six sessions where we get into the various religions in more particular detail. So just a pre-announcement, I guess, um, for your uh, edification or information. Okay, so world religions. We're just going to cover some basic points this morning. Uh, the first thing that I wanted to look at here, have, have you ever seen this bumper sticker? Yeah, a lot of heads shaking, okay. And uh, I think it's a really interesting bumper sticker. Um, there's a couple of points that it brings out in, that are particularly important to our discussion this morning, and that is, is that we live in a pluralistic world. And by pluralistic, what I mean is that there are a number of religions that interact with one another, okay? We don't live in an isolated world where it's strictly a Christian uh, environment like it might have been at one time uh, in, a, in our country's history, but we live in a pluralistic world where there's interaction amongst a, various, or a wide variety of faiths and ideologies. So on this bumper sticker we see on the far left, we see the symbol of Islam. Far right, we see the symbol of Christianity, and mixed amongst it, are symbols of Judaism, Wicca, there's even a peace sign, which is not necessarily religious ideology, but, but a worldview nonetheless. And so it suggests the plural, or indicates the plurality of worldviews that we live amongst. But it also suggests, by its imploring us to coexist, that there are sometimes problems in coexisting amongst the various world religions, and I think this is well known. Uh, if you, all you have to do is look at the news every day. There are certain groups within certain groups that uh, definitely have conflict and difficulties coexisting with other groups. So we want to look at uh, this idea of a plurality of religious views in our world and also how we coexist in that world. Now, I come from a Christian perspective. I assume that most of the people here at a Christian church are from a Christian perspective as well. Uh, so I will be coming from that perspective, but trying to be respectful and do justice to other religions and accurately present their viewpoints as we go through this morning. So uh, we will be approaching it from a Christian perspective, but with the hope of being accurate and, again, respectful. All right, so this morning what we're going to do is just answer some basic questions. And the first one that we're going to look at is, are the world religions essentially the same or are they essentially different? 
Okay? It maybe seems like kind of a simple question, but I found that in studying these issues and other issues as well, that starting with basics is very important to understand the big framework from within which we are dealing. So we're going to answer this question. Are the world religions essentially the same or are they different? Second question, there's only two this morning, and I think we'll be able to uh, take all of our time in just tackling these two. How do I coexist in a pluralistic religious world? Okay? So just some basic ideas of how the world, world religions relate to one another and how do I, particularly from a Christian perspective, live within a pluralistic world, okay? Um, big topics, even though they seem simple. So, um, and I wish we could do a question and answer time. I'm used to teaching at Kilns, and also I teach in the community learning department at COCC. And so we have this interaction of questions all the time when we talk about these types of subjects. But I believe that if you have questions, that we are going to do the redux afterwards. Are we going to do redux, Ben? Yes, okay, so there will be Redux, which is a question and answer session afterwards, because a lot of times this subject brings up uh, a, number of or a number of questions in people's minds, and I'll also be available afterward if you can't um, get your question in during Redux. Uh, I'll also be available afterwards just to chat where I can. So lots of questions. We'll do the best we can this morning. All right. I like to start when anytime we're talking about a subject, again, at the basics, at the fundamentals, at the beginning, deep in history, we, as a, from a Christian perspective, come out or we are offspring of the Jewish, Jewish faith, and so we want to go back to our roots, we want to go back to ancient Israel, and we want to look at the Shema, which is a basic confession of faith for the Jewish religion. And this comes right out of the book of clicker work. Clicker work. There we go. He <laughs> oh, it worked too much. <laughs> okay. The Shema. Let me get it on here. Okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you know anything about Judaism, this is bullseye. Okay. This is home base this is the central core of historic Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. Okay? This is basic core Jewish teaching. It is a core teaching that Christians have continued from their Jewish roots. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Judaism, if it's anything, it is monotheistic, at least in its biblical and orthodox historic form, okay? Also, within the Ten Commandments, we have this statement, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Two fundamental foundational principles of Judaism. There is one God, and you shall not 
make an image of anything to bow down to. Okay? Now, let's look at the cultural context in which this was originally given. Okay? Egypt, at one time a major world religion. It's no longer practiced to any significant degree, or the Egyptian religion is no longer practiced to any significant degree, but at one time, this was the cultural context in which that Jewish faith developed, or it was a major world religion within the ancient Near East. The Egyptian Book of the Dead. How many have read the Egyptian Book of the Dead? It's not, it's not on the top 10 bestseller. You have. No, you haven't. <laughs> it's one of my students. I know she would. <laughs> the Egyptian Book of the Dead is just a book that the Egyptians used, and it had spells and prayers and chants in it to help people on, in the afterlife. That's all it is. It's not a spy, uh, It's not a, an interesting story to read in a traditional sense of a book. But in any case, here is a passage, a, a, um, a depiction of what's called the judgment scene within the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I'm going to give you a little closer look. And if my, hey, it works. The little pointer works. That's cool. Over here, we see the gentleman being led to judgment. This is the god Anubis, okay? After that, you see the scales where they weigh out. And on one side of the scales, you'll see the, the person who's being judged. You'll see their heart. And on the other side, you'll see the feather of ma'at, which is truth and justice and so forth. And depending upon how they are weighed out on those scales determines the person's afterlife. And the little monster creature sitting next to the, uh, on the right-hand side of the uh, scales will devour the person if they don't come out so well in the judgment. Okay? And, but if they do come out, they will have, or well, they'll have a good afterlife. So, and also in the middle, we've got another picture of Anubis, a jackal-headed god. And then, oh, wait a minute, I want to show you this one. On the right with the tablet, that's the god Toth, okay, an ibis-headed god. And then they lead the person, I believe that's Horus, that has his hand up like this. And he's leading the person to the god Osiris. And then behind Osiris, at least one of those, is the god, goddess Isis, and so on and so forth, okay? This is a historical context in which Israel was given the commands of only one god and no image, and you can see it's profoundly different. They have a multiplicity of gods, and they make images of them, okay? So, view, the view of the divine nature in the historical context, was profoundly different in Israel than it was in the surrounding culture. Israel, you shall make not, not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And then Egypt, plenty of images. You couldn't swing a dead cat in Egypt and not hit a god. Okay? There was a multiplicity of gods. They were made in various images animals, humans, you name it, they did it, all right? So it seems basic, but we need to start at the foundation, the early history, and look at really critical, important issues. And of the view of the divine nature, Israel and Egypt were on different sides of the line. 
they had profoundly different worldviews in terms of their perspective on the divine nature. Okay? So I, I submit this. This may seem simple, but it's actually really important. These foundational issues are very important to think about. And then they draw, and then they, they yield implications that we have to deal with. But I submit that the world religions are different. They are essentially different. And I'm going to expand on that uh, a little bit more here shortly. But I think it's important to understand that they are different. Here we see a profound difference, and I'm going to illustrate this more. But again, don't skip over the easy stuff, the beginning stuff. There is a fundamental difference here in the view of the divine nature. Now, are there similarities amongst religions? Yes, there are. There is overlap between religions, and one example is on the basic ethical principle of what we call the golden rule. Sometimes it's referred to as the silver rule in a, in a slightly reversed um, rendition or uh, statement. But the golden rule, do not do or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay? In Egypt, in ancient Egypt, there was a rule that was very similar to this. That which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. Okay, that's a little bit of a silver rule. Do not do what you wouldn't have done to you, and the other one is do unto others. So they're slightly different, but they fall under the broad category of an ethical principle of reciprocity. Essentially what that means is don't do something to somebody else or use what you would want done to you as the gauge of what you do to others. Okay, And you can put it in the positive form or in the negative form, do or don't do, but in all and it really falls within a general category. The one, or similar category, the one I like the best, and you can find this rule all over the world, is the African version. Something like this, and I'll paraphrase it. Um, before you poke a little bird with a stick, Poke yourself with the same stick to see if you like it. It's kind of the same thing, okay? Kids on the playground, how'd you like it if somebody did that to you, okay? Principle of reciprocity. There is overlap in some areas of religions. But I submit that the world religions are essentially different, and I will submit that the differences are substantive. All right, by this I mean that the world religions, the differences that we find amongst the religions are not trivial matters. They're not like, well, Buddhists like their steak medium rare, Christians like their steak medium well, everybody will be fine, live and let live. They're not trivial matters. They are very substantive matters. They go to the core of the various worldviews uh, that we define as world religions. The differences are in huge in many cases. Okay, so let me give you some examples of this. This is, again, we're starting with ancient Israel. We're going to work our way up to some modern uh, expressions of religion. So I'm going to try to give you various examples from time frames and uh, continuity of practice. 
Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft. This is a command that we find in the Torah, the Jewish uh, first five books in Deuteronomy. Okay? No child sacrifice. No human sacrifice. Okay? Yet this is a practice that was pretty common in antiquity. And some of the stories are some of the most gruesome things I've ever read. But they go to the heart of the substantive difference that exists amongst world religions. Now look at this if you would. Child sacrifice. This is a example that comes out of the Bible. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. But they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. Okay? Child sacrifice to appease the gods was a common practice in antiquity, in the cultural milieu in which Israel existed. It gets even more amazing. Ancient Carthage... They ended up having a rough time with the Romans. Hannibal was a Carthaginian. Uh, but you'll see here on the map where Israel exists. North of them was the Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians migrated and set up a colony at Carthage, which again ended up having quite a few dust-ups with the Romans. But the Carthaginians were known in antiquity for massive industrial-scale child sacrifice. Look at this quotation from an ancient Greek writer about 300 BC, Clitarchus, and he says, out of reverence for Baal, the Phoenicians, especially, and this is their colony over at Carthage, wherever they seek to obtain some great favor, vow one of their children, burning it as a sacrifice to the deity if they are especially eager to gain success. Now look at this. This is horrific. There stands in their midst a bronze statue of Baal, its hands extended over a container of fire. And the flames engulf the child. When the flames feed upon the body, the limbs contract and the open mouth seems almost to be laughing when the contracted... or. The, and until the contracted body slips and falls into the fire. Can you imagine a religion of this nature? There's a, a statue. There's fire. You put the baby in the middle and it burns. And that's the sacrifice to that God. That is substantively different than the religion that you practice today. The world religions are substantively different. There are fundamental things about these things and there are many others, but I'm pointing this out as an ethical distinction of great significance. Great significance. That is not a minor, trivial issue. Okay, this is a, what archaeology, this is something I like doing in conjunction with biblical studies, and that's a study of archaeology. This is what's called a tofet, a cemetery of sacrificed children in Carthage. 
and here are all the remains. And so there's a way to connect archaeology with those ancient texts to show the reality of this practice in ancient Carthage. It's pretty amazing. Okay? Tofet means place of roasting, if you're interested. Yeah, it's kind of bad. Okay, it's a Hebrew word, actually. Means place of roasting. Now, the Jews themselves actually, unfortunately, fell into this. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Tophet in the valley of Ben Hinnom, that's Valley of Gehenna, which is a or the uh, word in the original from which we get our word hell. Sometimes it's translated as hell, Gehenna. To burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Do not do this. It's a substantive difference. Okay? No, let no one be found who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, yet they are sacrificing their son and daughter in the fire. A foundational difference. Let's move now to the Western Hemisphere, the Aztecs. Okay? This is the things that I've looked at so far are ancient religions that are no longer practiced for the most part. Here is a relatively modern religion that is no longer practiced. And then we will look at some ancient religions that still are practiced, so we'll get a variety here. But the Aztecs is all the way up to the 1500s, which is a relatively modern time, practiced human sacrifice. And watch how this is tied in with their mythology, and you can trace it archaeologically. The Aztecs, of course are over here, and in their capital city of Tenochtitlan, they had a major temple called the Temple Mayor. Now, this temple is no longer in existence. This is a recreation or a model in a museum. They have found, the archaeologists have found the base of it, and they've recreated it here. But what they used to do is to march people up these stairs, sacrifice them by cutting their hearts out, and then rolling their bodies down the hill or down the stairs to appease the gods. And down at the bottom, here's an interesting thing. Archaeologically, or archaeologists recently found this big round stone, and this is in a museum now <clears throat> in Mexico, and on the stone is the cut-up body of a goddess. And if you look closely, you'll see in the middle her torso, down here is a foot, up here is an arm. It's all dismembered and cut up. And that was placed at the base of the stairs down here. And what they would do is march people up the stairs, sacrifice them, and then roll them down the stairs, and their bodies would come and tumble and land right on top of this big stone with the dismembered body of the goddess. Now watch what's going on here. This is an, this is an Aztec myth that depicts or that tells about the death of that goddess, okay? With the serpent of fire, he struck the goddess. This is her brother. He cut off her head and left it lying there. On the slope of the mountain, the body of the goddess went rolling down the hill. It fell to pieces. In different places fell her hands, her legs, her body, okay? So then we come to the temple and what they're doing here is recreating their mythology. Do you see how that works? 
This mythology is she was on some mountain and her brother cut her up and killed her and rolled her dismembered body down the hill. Here in the temple, they were doing the same thing, but to other people. They were recreating it for a religious uh, ritual. How's everybody doing? It's pretty gruesome, isn't it? <laughs> but it's important to know and to study these things and to make informed decisions about how we want to understand the relationships amongst ideologies and worldviews. Okay? So I'm submitting, as I said, that the world religions are different and they are substantively different. Okay? Let's go on to a modern faith, Islam. All right. Much in the news today. This is in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and in the middle of the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock, which is an Islamic shrine. And I happened to work on an archaeology dig over there for a couple weeks. We lived in the old city near this site. Uh, and I got this picture of the Dome of the Rock while we were up there on that main platform. Islam, much in the news, but what do they believe, and how does it compare to Christianity? This is an inscription inside that Dome of the Rock, giving their theology about Christ, and it says, people of the book, and that's a reference to Jews and Christians, okay? So when they say people of the book, they're addressing Jews, Christians, one or both of those two. Do not transgress the bounds of your religion. Speak nothing but the truth about God. Now listen, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle. Do not say three. What's that a reference to? Yeah, the Trinity. Do not say three. Forbear, and it will be better for you. God is but one. God forbid that he should have a son. Jesus is an apostle of God, but he's not the son of God. Do not say three, there is no trinity. Going on. The Quran. Clicker. There we go. This is in Surah 4, 157, I think that says. 127. They denied the truth and uttered a monstrous falsehood against Mary. They declared, now this is their monstrous falsehood. We have put to death the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the apostle of God. Uh-uh. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought they did. Islamic theology is, is that Jesus did not die on the cross. He is not the son of God. There is no trinity, and of course there's no resurrection. Okay? Now I submit to you, regardless of which side of this equation you may be on, that these two faiths are substantively different. Okay? So Jesus in Christianity, vast majority, if not all Christian groups, would say that Jesus is the Son of God. However they may disagree on other issues, this is pretty straightforward and clear, pretty foundational. Islam, Jesus is not the Son of God. A direct contradiction. He is not, in the same time, in the same sense, okay? Clearly a contradiction. God is a trinity. 
God is not a trinity, a contradiction, same, t- same time, same sense. How about this one? Jesus was crucified. Jesus was not crucified. Okay? Direct contradiction. So whatever you may want to say, those things about how the world religions may have, subs- have some similarities, substantively they are substantial. Wow, substantively, they are substantially different? (laughs) They're substantially different. Uh, There are huge gaps here. They both can't be true. Somebody's got some splaining to do, so to speak. Okay? So they are foundationally different. These are things that Christians cannot give up and still be Christian. Okay? Now, let's go on. Buddhism, an ancient faith that is still with us today. Buddhism is a very interesting faith to, uh, to study. It is exceptionally diverse. Um, first of all, we have this Buddha Sakyamuni. This is the normal Buddha that you think of when somebody says Buddha. Born in the 6th century BC, uh, the Buddha is Siddhartha Gautama, he's sometimes called. Um, Shakyamuni, I got this picture of the statue in the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. But also in the same museum, the diversity of Buddhism is portrayed because there's, and this is surprising, other Buddhas in Buddhism. Um, And some of these other Buddhas are paid attention to more in various sects than the historic Buddha. A very surprising thing. So here is Buddha Amitabha or Amida Buddha in a group called Pure Land Buddhism. He is really the focus. They don't deny the existence of the other Buddha, but he, Buddha Amida, is the focus within Pure Land Buddhism. Now you've seen this statement before, correct? Christianity is the only religion in which salvation is by grace. Through faith, all others are by works, that is, humans earning their way to God or salvation. How many have heard that? Raise your hand. Okay? It's an absolute falsehood. It is not true at all. There are significant examples around the world of faith-based religions where grace, where you are saved by grace through faith. And Pure Land Buddhism is one of them. This is a Christian sacred cow that's, that I hear frequently and should be struck from the Christian lexicon of phrases, okay? So let's look at Pure Land Buddhism, all right? Pure Land Buddhism. Amitabha has created a pure land of paradise. Sinners can enter this land by repeating his name in faith. These are their tenets of faith, Okay? They are then saved by grace, by his grace and power alone. Pure land texts. And it matters not how great a sinner a man may be. Amida does not hate a man, however deeply stained by sin he may be. The reason we give ourselves up to Amida is that he welcomes those who repeat his name even three or five times. And this depends not on our, or depends on our faith. Okay, and, and this depends upon our faith, okay? 
No matter how many times we may call upon the sacred name, this can by no means be called salvation by one's own power. These are direct quotes out of uh, Pure Land Buddhist texts, okay? Salvation by one's own power, so long as they are really looking up to Amida and trusting to his salvation alone or his power alone, okay? This is salvation by grace through faith, okay? It's a very widespread Buddhist sect, particularly in Japan. Um, it's really fascinating. I was talking to my uh, Buddhist friend. I was having lunch or tea with him one time, and I'm asking him about Buddhism or the Pure Land, and he goes, oh, yeah, the Baptist Buddhists. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, well, that's our, those are, that's our Baptist wing. They're the ones into salvation by grace through faith. Faith in Amida, okay? And this depends upon our faith. Oops, going the wrong way. Um, now, a Christian response here. This is really, really interesting because on the surface, these things seem really similar. I've read some Pure Land texts and I go, man, is this the book of Romans? <laughs> it's really amazing stuff, okay? But the Christian response is also points out the fact that these things, although on the surface they seem similar, really they are about as different on an ontological level as you can get. And I will explain that in a moment. Jesus is an actual historical person. The stories of Amida are mythological in nature. So, I like to travel. And uh, whenever I go different places, I, I never like to pass up the opportunity to go to a good museum. Or if I'm out of town, I will uh, oftentimes I'll go to a Buddhist church or a Hindu temple or whatever. And I've done this before to my wife. On some, sometimes these churches uh, or these temples celebrate or have their services on uh, Sunday morning. So same time as Christian churches do. So I'll be, I remember one time I was over, I think it was in Salem at a Sikh temple. And I took a selfie of myself. Texted it to my wife. I think she was in church here. So if you heard her scream at that time, because I had at that time a Sikh turban on, and I was dressed to, to not be offensive to the Sikh religion. Uh, but it's really interesting to get out and go to some of these places. And so I was up in Seattle, and uh, we were going to a Seahawks game. The Seahawks game doesn't start till 1. Our plane lands in Seattle. I think it was 7 in the morning. Hey, we got all this time. It's Sunday. Let's go to church. Let's get some variety in the game. We're going to a Buddhist church. In fact, we're going to a Buddhist Pure Land church. Or Pure Land Buddhist church. This is the inside of the church. Okay. Kind of nice. Good folk. Um, and whenever I'm at these churches, I always like to say, hey, do you have a brochure or a book or something that I can buy that explains who you are, what you believe? This is an excellent place. And Christians put out very good books about other religions, uh, recommend some of those. But also it's good to do your own research, to go to the place, buy their books, read it, sit in on a class or two, uh, and learn directly. So I got this book at the Pureland Buddhist Church up in Seattle, simply Jodo Shinshu. And I was fascinating. Uh, Tim Tebow didn't play. That's when he played for the Jets. And so that's why we went up there to see Seattle. This was a couple years ago. We're still Seahawks fans. But anyway, he didn't play much. So I'm glad I had this book to read. 
Actually, we watched the game. It was fun, but I read it on the plane and so on and so forth. Shim simply Judah Shinshu. Okay, now this is a quote out of that book explaining Pure Land Buddhism. Walk with me. No one doubts that Shakyamuni Buddha as a historical being, although he lived some 2,500 years ago in India. Remember, there's, diverse, there's a number of Buddhas. So this Pure Land Church says, nobody doubts the existence of Sakyamuni Buddha, the original Buddha or the Buddha that we think of Buddha when we think of Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. There are many relics and ruins to prove the existence of Sakyamuni Buddha. Let me give you a little quick story. Do you know where part of Buddha is buried? The Buddha Buddha? For a little trivia question. Ken and I were at the United Nations taking a tour, Ken Weitzma. And we came around a corner, and there's the uh, burial part, burial stupa for part of Buddha's remains are in the United Nations. Believe it or not, it's really true. So, very fascinating, okay? Uh, they, I think he was cremated, and they separated his remains out and put him in various shrines, and then some of them eventually got to the United Nations. So Buddha is buried at the United Nations, or at least part of him. Little trivia, okay? Use that next time you want to play the game of trivia with somebody. Where is Buddha buried in the United States? No one doubts, however, that Sakyamuni Buddha was a historical being. All right? That's fair enough. This is a quote out of that Jodo Shinshu, simply Jodo Shinshu book on Pure Land Buddhism about their Buddha that they focus on. It is, however, different with Amida Buddha because he is not like Sakyamuni Buddha who is born as a human being in this world. One cannot find relics and ruins of Amida Buddha even if one goes to India or Sri Lanka. Now notice this, Amida Buddha, that's our Buddha, is like the heroes in fairy tales. They are not historical beings. They, but they manifest honesty, sincerity, truthfulness, kindness, and so on and so forth. They depict a way of life. Their Buddha, according to their literature, is not a historical being. Okay? He's like a heroes in fairy tales. Although we shouldn't put fairy tale heroes in the same category, they're not up to Amida's level. Ontologically, they're the same. Okay? And by ontology, what I'm looking at or talking about is the subject of being, okay? It's a philosophical concept. And basically, in ontology, you have stuff that is mythological and real. And when you get to some belief that is ontologically different than another belief, you have as about a difference as you can possibly get. And the Buddha in Pure Land Buddha by their own statements, is not a real being. He's mythological in nature. Now, how can he create a land of paradise and save you? I don't know. It's not my business. But my business is to see the nature of these religions as they really are. And Christianity is substantively different because we would say our Savior, Jesus, is a real historical being. And therefore, we can look to him, and he will, in fact, save us. In Pure Land Buddhism, their Buddha, who is saving them by grace through faith, is mythological like a fairy tale. He does not exist in reality. They are ontologically different categories in which these various saviors are put. 
Okay? So on the surface, these things look, wow, salvation by grace through faith. But when you work it through, you go, oh my gosh, these are about as different as you can get. You see what I'm saying there? Okay? These differences are huge. They are substantive. And here's another one. So I, may, I hope I made my point about that they're different and they're substantively different. They're also mutually exclusive. Now, Christianity sometimes is given a rap or looked down on because it's supposedly narrow-minded, okay? Look, you can't assert anything as fact without, at the same time, excluding the opposite. It's just the nature of reality. And all world religions are like this, okay? And it is what they should be. It is being authentic to who they are and talking with integrity. Now watch. Christianity. Christianity is an exclusive religion. It makes this claim. Salvation is found in no one else. For there was no other name under heaven to give to mankind which we, by which we must be saved. Okay? Amida Buddha will not save you. A mythological being can't do that. There is no salvation by grace through faith there. Now, that would be an exclusive statement. It's not mean-spirited. It's just what you actually believe as the way things are. Okay? But all the world religions are like this. They have to be uh, by their very nature. Okay? So I just want to give you one example, and I could give you many other ones. But this is a, a text from... Sikh literature, uh, Sikh is a South Indian or South uh, Asian origin, Pakistan, India, in that area. Notice their exclusivity. Sikhism rejects the concept of chosen people, as in Judaism, and the caste system, as in Hinduism. It also rejects the concept of entering nirvana without the blessing of God, as in Buddhism and Jainism. They are rejecting. They are telling you who they are. They are saying these other faiths do not represent the way reality really is. Okay? This, this idea of narrow-mindedness and exclusivity and all of that as being somehow uh, um, a knock on Christianity is really you got to get out more. All religions do this. Buddha rejected very specific things in Hinduism, the caste system, for instance. Islam rejects other things, on and on and on. And this is the way they should be. This is, I like dealing with other religions when they just say, here's what we think really is the case. They're being authentic. They're being honest. They're acting with integrity. They're not hiding anything. If you assert one thing, then you by nature exclude the, the opposite or a different thing. You can't maintain that the world is a sphere without excluding the possibility of a flat earth. And that's not narrow-minded. It's just an assertion of what you believe the case to be. Okay? And by the way, tolerance can only exist in a plurality of worldviews, if you think about it. If everybody's the same... What's to tolerate? Nothing, okay? Tolerance only comes into play when there are true differences. And, and I honestly, I've, I've dealt with a lot of people from different faiths, and I like it when they just tell me the truth of what they really believe. And, and if you disagree, that's fine. But let's put it out on the table, okay? Now, I think this is the way it is, okay? 
So all religions are mutually exclusive. This is not something unique to Christianity. All right. So, the world religions are different, different. The differences are substantive. And the world religions are mutually exclusive. How then do I coexist? And we're going to close with this, and I'll be a little shorter than the broader first part. How do I coexist in a pluralistic religious world? Okay? Here's, I'm going to give you two principles that I think are really important. First of all, respect. Respect, but not necessarily agree with the beliefs and customs of other faiths. You must respect them. You don't have to agree with them, but you should respect their beliefs and customs. And let me show you how this works in practice, okay? Respect, but, and here's the big one that I see Christians and people in the West committing a very disrespectful uh, behavior. I, I put it under the category of Western intellectual colonialism. And here's what, it, here's what I, I think you should kind of think about this and make sure you avoid it. Do not say things about the religions that they do not say about themselves. Okay, that's an intro here. And I'm going to give you a very specific example that I think Americans commit. Uh, that I think is profoundly disrespectful. But let me give you the broad category and explain this here to begin with. Do not say about other religions things that they do not say about themselves, okay? So when I'm teaching at COCC and their community learning department, we have all kinds of faiths come in, and I also talk about Buddhism, Islam, Sikhism, whatever. Um, and the one thing that I want to do is when I present one of these faiths, is to accurately present what that faith believes. I've sat down with a number of adherents to different faiths and say, this is what I'm going to say. Is it accurate? And a lot of times they'll say, no, you're missing this point. You should emphasize that. But in any case, it's a responsibility of us to accurately present faiths when we talk about them. That is just basic respect. You don't say about something else what they don't say about themselves, okay? Now, let me give you the one that I think is particularly troublesome, and Americans think they're being polite when they do this. They're actually being profoundly disrespectful, okay? And here it is. All religions are pretty much the same. That is profoundly disrespectful. And the reason it is disrespectful is because the religions do not say that about themselves. Islam does not say about itself that it is essentially the same as Hinduism. It says, no, we are profoundly different. And we have no business planting a Western intellectual colonial flag in the middle of their ideologies and saying, we're going to reorder this whole thing and tell you how you really relate to each other. That's not our business. Take it or leave it as they are in and of themselves. But when we say they're essentially all the same, we are not saying something about them that they say about themselves. In fact, they go to great pains to say that they are distinct from one another. So let it be so. We cannot change what they are to fit what we want as a preconceived notion about how they're supposed to be the syncretistic uh, kumbaya world. 
okay? Doesn't exist. And they don't say that about themselves. And it's profoundly disrespectful to say to somebody uh, that's a Hindu, well, you're essentially the same as um, Islam or Buddhism or Christianity. No, they're different. They know it, and they don't have any trouble saying that. But sometimes Americans fall into this. We don't say things about other religions that they don't say about themselves. You can disagree with what they say, but it's a purely disrespectful to reinterpret the thing into something that it doesn't say it is in and of itself, okay? I think that's really profound. We have to take them, or that's really important, we have to take them as they are and not plant a colonial, intellectual colonial flag in the middle of it and try to reorganize their world. It doesn't work. It's not right. Okay? So take them as they are. Okay? So avoid bad manners in temples, during rituals, during diets. I've made so many mistakes. I could tell you stories. If we did a part two, I could tell you a lot of things. But, um, you know, I've gone to a lot of temples and talked with a lot of people, and there's a line here that you should respect the rituals and the manners and the customs of other people. But you cannot go too far and join in in some of the rituals that are against Christianity. So there's a real line here. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. So I was in a Jain temple one time, and Jainism, uh, they were pouring oil to their gods and doing these rituals and so forth, and I'm sitting in the back against the wall and I have my feet stretched out like this, okay? And my feet are pointing towards the God, okay? That is disrespectful in a Jain temple. You don't point your feet to the God. So they came and they told me, don't do that. So I didn't, okay? I mean, just, sure, I'll follow the customs. No, I don't believe that that God is really a God. I'm not, but I don't want to give offense. You see what I'm saying? So, and I've had some of my students go visit uh, Islamic mosques. In an Islamic mosque, women wear head coverings. I tell the students, you wear the head coverings. That is respect, okay? You, if you have a vegetarian friend from a different faith, you feed them vegetarian food. You respect their customs and so forth. There is a line, though, that you can't cross. Um, and I'll tell you just a brief story here. I was in a Hindu temple up in Portland, and I'm kind of trying, I always try to be nondescript and just sort of mi uh, mix in without drawing too much attention and just observe. And there's the whole uh, ritual going on and the burning of the incense and the offerings and the prayers and chants and whatnot going on. And I make the distinction that I won't give disrespect. I'll wear the hat. I'll, I won't point my feet to the God. Uh, I'll be quiet. But I won't join in if it comes to pouring oil or doing incense or bowing or praying to the gods or, you know, going past that line. So the ritual itself, I won't join in on. So I was in this temple, and uh, they went through their whole thing. And then at the end, and oh, we have a gift uh, from the god Vishnu. I'm thinking, oh, no, here it comes. <laughs> and uh, we have this blanket and this apple. Uh, that we want to give as a gift, and the gift goes to you. And they point to me. I think, come on up. 
So I'm thinking, oh, okay, this could get really uncomfortable because I don't want to disrespect them, but if I have to say or bow or, or pour oil or incense or something to Vishnu, I can't do that, okay? I, I, I just, that's not who I think is God, and God, God is pretty strict about these issues. So I walked up, and, and, um, and they said, and here's a gift from Vishnu, the blanket and the apple, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, okay, so I took the gift and ate the apple and I still have the blanket at home. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's okay. I hope that's okay. I didn't want to give offense by saying, no, I don't want your junk or anything like that. That, that would be disrespectful, okay? So I took it and I said, thank you. Um, and, but I didn't have to go through any of the ordinances. And, and I, think that's, uh, I think that's the way you do it. That's my guess, okay? I've made a mistake or two one time. I was walking through a Taoist temple one time, and I'm trying to be polite and follow this guy, and he's walking along, and, and he suddenly turns and, and he bows to his God, and I'm imitating him, okay? And I'm walking, and he bows, and then I turn and I bow, and I, oh, can't take that back. Uh, sorry, Lord. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you got to do the best you can, okay? And I, I so whatever. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> Uh, in any case, I think this issue of respect is very important. The world religions are what they are in and of themselves. They make certain truth claims. You respect what those truth claims are, and you don't adjust them to your intellectual grid. That's not appropriate. Okay? And you also don't give offense uh, in regard to their customs and habits and so forth. We have no business offending. That is not the game we're in. Okay? And then let me give you the last thing here that I wanted to talk about. Peace. Okay? I'm well aware of the fact that certain sections of certain religions don't necessarily adhere very closely to the concept of peace. Okay? But Christianity says this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we, this, I'm not trying to make any global statements about war and peace and, and that we're not going to go into the big questions there. Some Christians believe in a just war. Others believe in complete nonviolence. That's not what I'm going to try to unpack here. All I'm going to say is that whatever the case, the New Testament leans towards the peace side of the equation. Period. There is no question about that. Okay? Blessed are the peacemakers. As far as it's possible, live at peace with all men. We have no business doing violence egging a mosque, beating up a Buddhist, whatever. I'm just using possible illustrations. That's not our game. We are to live at peace with everyone as far as it is possible. We are to seek peace, not violence. Christianity leans, if all, not all the way, at least substantially towards the peace side of the equation. Okay, so let's close. Respect, but not necessarily agree with beliefs and customs. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Basic questions. Are the world religions essentially the same or different? I submit that they are different. I submit that they are substantively different. I submit that they are mutually exclusive. Nonetheless, I do believe we can coexist peacefully with people. We do that by respect both in customs and beliefs, not necessarily adhering to, but respecting, being courteous, and also, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. 
okay? Leaning towards the peace side of the equation. Coexist? Can we do that? Yes, I think we can. I think we have to unpack this and understand it in detail. We can, but there's a no and a yes to this. Yes to respect. I think that goes without saying. Yes to peace, if possible, okay? We lean towards the nonviolent side of the equation. Yes to peace. But I would say this, no to denying the exclusivity and uniqueness of Jesus. It is just the nature of Christianity that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you are a Christian, you ascribe to that and you hold it all the way. Thank you very much.